In this episode of Unpacking the Real, we use Gunter Anders' Hollywood Diary to delve into some wickedly tricky topics. We're tackling cultural ownership, truth, authenticity, and belonging. So, no small task. If you wanted to sum it up more succinctly, the overarching theme we're exploring is translation. Our guests are Tracy Cameron and Dr. Consuelo Martinez Reyes, and they bring us two very different perspectives. Tracy is a Gamilaroi woman who now lives in Sydney, but her family are from southern Gamilaroi country, which is in northern New South Wales. Although Tracy was actually born and raised on Wiradjuri country in southern New South Wales. Tracy is part of the Indigenous Languages Revitalisation Movement, helping bring these ancient languages back from the brink, as she describes it. She teaches both Gamilaroi language and Indigenous history at the University of Sydney. Dr Consuelo Martinez-Reyes is originally from Puerto Rico, but is now based in Sydney and a lecturer in Spanish and Latin American studies at Macquarie University. Consuelo is also a writer and translator. Among her many publications, the English-language version of her book, Blank Canvases, was released in 2021. In this conversation, we wanted to explore the ways the diary brought meaning to our guests through their own unique frames of reference. In the first instance, I asked Consuelo for her reaction to our translation of Gunther Anders' diary, Real is Not Real Enough. I was trying to find the quote because I also read, I read and then I listened. And he, he does mention something like, you know, as we speak, boots are being buried under the rubble at war. Although they are marching through the world, these boots are here treated as a thing of the past. They are already dangling next to the Greek sandals, imperial guard boots and long forgotten footwear. And there, there are these boots here that we're trying to make look old and worn. And it's, it is quite confronting for the reader, I think. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading it and, of course, listening to it because it felt very philosophical at times. And you, you start reading it. I was expecting something kind of maybe fun, maybe ironic, that he was going to make uh, fun of the use of these props and how they're being fake and useless. But he turns it into something very philosophical about life and how um, this turns into big questions of history. Like, is history a, a, a mishmash of what life was really about? We can't know the truth about our world if we ignore that the business of faking history has become a substantial part of history itself. Um, and I think when you first read it, you're not expecting it. But then when you listen to it, it's even more confronting because the, the audio has its own pace and it makes you listen. You know, like what, whatever you skip while you were reading, because it's getting confronting and you just keep skipping, um, the audio stops and it makes you listen. So I quite enjoyed it. I'm really interested in that question, Consuelo, about the difference in your experience of listening to it versus reading it. Can you elaborate on that a bit more for us? 
I felt like it was like reading a different text when I listened to it because um, I, I found that there were passages that I, I just went back to the text and I, went, I don't think I read this. And I did, and I had read it. But because it's in a different intonation, it's at a different pace, then you realize subtleties that are maybe not there when your eye is the one making the selection, right? I'm, I'm the one who decides when to stop when I read, but the audio does it for you. And I, I really liked it because it made me stop in places where I wouldn't have myself and, and they were important spots. That's super interesting. Tracy, did you have, did you just listen to it or did you read it as well? And how did you find the experience of the sound? Yes, I just um, listened to it. Um, I thought listening to it was interesting because, you know, you got the sound of his voice and, you know, how he felt, I think, uh, was conveyed in that. And I think he felt, um, well, for me, I think he felt that that was like, you know, a reinterpretation of history of what was really happening and, you know, changing it and skewing it for whatever reasons to sell a movie instead of, you know, to report the truth of the matter. So, yeah, I think listening to it was really impactful. Yes. One of the questions we're really interested in is about translation, obviously, and this is a text that has been translated from the German to the English on paper, digital paper perhaps, but on paper in the first instance, and then into voice. And that translation has kind of required perhaps more at each level than we we might have anticipated. How do you find, um, Tracy, working in sound versus working in text? My experience is limited, but the capacity to sort of capture some Indigenous sounds with the English language letters we have seems pretty limited. So I was wondering how you found that work and the experience of trying to do that. Yeah, it is difficult. And um, I guess the uh, kind of, you know, for example, there I think there are 60 different ways to write Gamilaroi, the name of my language, so, you know, with a C, with a G, with a K, with endings different at the end, different spellings. And so it is um, it is kind of difficult to capture that. But luckily, I guess we had a few speakers who were able to uh, be recorded, but even there, um, lots, of the, lots of the sounds are being reinterpreted by modern speakers or people revitalising the languages now so that, you know, they're not making that mm sound. They're making it into an N sound instead of a instead of saying naya. I will say naya. So you know the sounds are different, and um, it's a matter of kind of trying to tell people what the sounds probably were, but then people are going to reinterpret for themselves anyway. So, but you know the main thing is that we get the language back again. So those kind of things are. Minor, I think, yeah. That's interesting. So, you know, in the scheme of things, capturing the language is the priority or sort of, you know, making sure that the language doesn't disappear. But I guess you're working with people who are English speakers first and so those traditional sounds get anglicised by even Indigenous speakers. Hmm. Yes, that's true, yes. And um, although some people do have a bit of a heritage and some words and a few things like that. It, it is um, it is very much that we're very much English speakers as a first language, and so this is we're learning our language as a second language. Hmm. Consuelo, how do you find that relationship between uh, 
languages in, in text form or written form and in spoken form? Um, it's a very interesting question because in Spanish you you get what you get. <laughs> it's very straightforward in terms of sounds. And, and this is a conversation that I have often and I have to convince my students that if that's how it's spelled, that's what it's going to sound like. There's no complication. There's no um, second take. And I think English or French or other languages that they usually know, um, they're very up in the air. You know, they, it could go one way or another. You can read the word read and it could be read or read. Um, and so, you know, there, there's these things. So that's very simple when it comes to Spanish and teaching Spanish and it takes the load of their mind. But what it does for me as a translator is that as I um, read a text, I'm constantly thinking about what was the decision made when this word or phrase was chosen. Whereas um, where I listen to an audio or an audiobook, not only this in this instance, I'm... I just, I just let it go. No, I, it sounds so natural. You really forget that this was written in another language. Even when you hear a foreign word sleeping there, you're like, oh, that it makes sense. It makes sense. And so you don't question it. You don't think twice. But while reading the text um, this time, I found myself thinking on things like, you know, at some point he, he writes the meaning of life in quotations. And I'm like, is this a German phrase or is this an English phrase? Is there something else? So much for the meaning of life. What an idiotic phrase. And yet, it once was our profound answer to everything. I hereby swear that it shall now only pass my lips under the rest. Uh, and you constantly think about, is this the way that he thought? You know, what, what, what are the words for unique or singular? Because it's so important when he's discussing uh, copies of copies and what is original and what is unique and what is, um, uh, I guess, truthful, you know. And so you start thinking in linguistic terms of like how many of these words exist there in the original and, and in English and what were the choices made? So I think I overcomplicated. No, I think it's, I think that's fascinating that you've got that kind of meta translation awareness when you're interacting with this text. And I wonder, in a sense, if because it's a text about authenticity, there's a way in which the translators, you know, Chris and Ben, who've who've done this amazing work on it, try to give you that in a sense, um, so that some of that interpretive capacity is given back to you. I don't know. What do you think, Consuelo? I think there's some play of words there. I, I thought the translators did an excellent job and you can see there's, there were some choices. I just, I really wonder what were the other options. <laughs> what, what was going, you know, like I really want to know the whole process, but there's definitely um, a finesse that has come with um with choosing the words, like there's, um, I'm reading the text here, there's a quote that says, Has history only ever been the continuum of its own self-distortion? I think, wow, in Spanish, that, that's a mouthful. Um, and it is in English as well. It's a, it hits you, like in the gut, when you read something like that. And I can only think, and the original must really hit you. Um, 
you know, and you you always have that feeling that translations just a version of something, you know, just like the copies, just what he's saying, you know, that it's it's a copy that stands in for an original. And and then you get this meta moment of this text is a copy that is standing in for the original, and yet I take it as the original. I enjoy it. I take it to be true. So I think it was a marvelous work. That's so interesting, Tracy. Did you have any sort of sense of that as well as somebody who who is you know a multilingual? The, that sense of the the translation, the the translatedness, I guess, being evident in the text. Um, in a way, I mean, not so much, I guess, but, um, yes, I thought it was interesting that, um, what he was saying about everything and, you know, using all of those things. And I love the cheesecakes and that kind of stuff as well. (laughs) (laughs) Look, cheesecake isn't made from milk and flour. It's made from cream cheese and cookies. First, the cookies are crumbled for the base. Then the cream cheese is mixed into the filling. Costume drama is made exactly the same way. Yes, I did wonder then about the cheesecake, but anyway, I guess, <laughs> yes, it's a thing everyone has. But yes, I think, you know, I did kind of think about how how it was expressed and I thought the way he expressed things was really good. So that means I guess the translation was really good to, to kind of inform me of what he was thinking and, you know, by saying it in a way that he would have said it. So I thought that was, yeah, really interesting. Tracy, I was wondering if you had any kind of resonances around questions like, you know, we see Anders being confronted by reproductions and sort of exploitations, I guess, of his personal cultural history. That must be something that Aboriginal people face a lot. You know, if you're walking through downtown Sydney and there's a souvenir shop with plastic boomerangs being sold for kind of $2 to tourists, could you translate that into your own experiences? Did it resonate for you in that way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, with in Australia, there were more than 250 different nations and, you know, all of those different groups had different ways of doing things and um, there's been much appropriation of uh, art, you know, a whole range of Aboriginal um, cultural and heritage and that kind of thing. So, you know, from the $1 note that we used to have and the artwork that was just taken and used and never people were never compensated or paid or anything like that for that. Um, the same thing, as you say, is happening now that um, tourist shops, uh, hopefully it's stopping a bit, but they are still buying that stuff that's made overseas, not by Aboriginal people. They have nothing to do with it. And um, making money out of someone else's heritage and history, and that's pretty bad. And that goes on with a lot of different things, you know, not only artwork or Um, cultural items but you know intellectual knowledges and um, you know science is doing a lot of research into different grains or different uh, things from the rainforest to find medicines or to use in the modern economy Um, and so a lot of that is not recognized and um, Aboriginal people are not involved in it in a way that's um, compensating them for their understanding and knowledge that they have built up and um, you know for example I think I'm involved in a an interesting project where um, we're Sydney University science agricultural area looking at grains in Camilleroy country to see if that is something that we can use to make bread you know because it's got a lot more vitamin c a lot more 
nutrition than wheat and isn't a gluten kind of item. And they're looking at um, looking at stories to see if there are any knowledge there about you know harvesting the grain and producing the flour and how it was done and that kind of thing to try and use that old knowledge to um, you know bring it into modern research about the grains and to use those grains eventually uh, so that kind of thing is really interesting but it's um um and that project is working in cooperation with aboriginal community and aboriginal people so that's fantastic but many don't and you know they're just trying to um use what's there but without the aboriginal knowledges and the aboriginal um, people's involvement so that kind of thing is playing out even now no, I, I had a question for Tracy, um, but I but I honestly can't remember if the audio included these because, as I said, I had this feeling that the audio and the text kind of were pointing out different things to me. Um, but Tracy, at some point in the text at the at the very end of what we were sent, he talks about how in the U.S. history, especially European history, right, it's kind of, it's a new thing. It's a newly acquired history for them, but they won't look at their own past and they won't look at their own history. In America, nothing is older than good old progress because this country has a long history of only looking into the future. The pride Americans feel for the newness of their new world goes back generations. But... There is no tradition of looking back. History is still undiscovered. Here, the past is something new. And I thought of Australia, as so I was reading that. I thought, in Australia really is, we say in Spanish, right, that you look at your belly button. Because you, you, look, you look at yourself, but you miss everything, you know? And, and I thought, well, Australia is just looking in without really looking. Um, and, and I thought, I wonder what you thought about that, about not looking at Australia's past. Yes, well, there's, um, you know, many people, well, some people have talked about the Great Australian Silence and that that is not talking about the true history that's happened in Australia. And interestingly enough, I was listening to a lecture in the history course I'd, I'm involved in and uh, the lecturer was talking about a plaque that was in Fremantle and it had been made in, I think it was, ooh, about the early 1900s, and it was a plaque to explorers who had been um, exploring in an area of Lagrange Bay, um, which is near Broome, and they had been killed. And then so what happened is that the, the government or the governor of the time sent out people to investigate and it was actually a punitive expedition and there was um, people, uh, the eight men who went out killed uh, 20 men, women and children. So there was a massacre at the site and that was justified because three of those three explorers had been killed. Um, and the monument was erected to the explorers to say they'd explored in this area and, you know, they'd been killed. And that was it, full stop. But in uh, 1994, many, many years later, 90 years later, there was a plaque added to that monument, just a little plaque at the bottom, that was erected to commemorate the Aboriginal people that had been massacred there and acknowledge that, which is an interesting way to 
I suppose, acknowledge history, although very small compared to the to the monument itself. It is. I, I think in other countries they would have turned that statue down and requested that a statue in commemoration of the people who passed away in the massacre would be erected. No? That would be the right thing to do. <laughs> Acknowledgement, but minimalist, I suppose. And sort of they're writ large, I guess, even in terms of the size of the, the imagery associated with the messages um, uh, and that that's still something that people find acceptable. Um, and I think that story, Tracy, is is repeated in so many other parts of the country as well of um, uh, Indigenous massacres that have not been told uh, and that are such shameful secrets that Australia doesn't seem to even be able to still um, tell those stories in straightforward kinds of ways. It's a very contested space, isn't it? Oh, definitely, yes, yes. Mm. And yes, but there is research going on to um, to find out what happened where and the massacre map that Newcastle University are producing is still going on. They're still um, they're moving around Australia and they have, but you should have a look at that, the massacre map, and just to see how many... Um, massacres did happen. Hmm. It's enormously confronting and not just because the massacres happened but because people don't know that the massacres happened. Yeah, and because there was, I suppose, that that look away, uh, ignoring of it and almost covering up. Yeah, oh, and still, true. and still now. Yeah, it is such a shameful history, I think, and shame is probably a really interesting question to, to or point to, to put into that um, uh, in terms of how people can start to to reconcile things and I think the shame is a big a big part of it. Yeah, truth telling has to happen so that's going to be the way forward I think here. Yeah. yeah. Um Consuelo Spanish as a language has had its own um, issues around uh, colonialisation. Are there strands of this that sort of get picked up in a different way in in your experience in your history and and your language? Mm. I think, um, you know, there's just, I don't know if this is completely connected, but there are hierarchies of language, I think, um, because there's there's many versions of Spanish, of course, and so I think in, in many countries you expect to learn Castilian Spanish, European Spanish, and, uh, and then Latin American Spanish is uh, secondary, or even within Latin America there are hierarchies of, um, like, I'm from the Caribbean, and like, oh, Caribbean Spanish is hard to understand, which this exists in English too. You know, we, we do the same with other English, right? Um, but I think, um, yeah, language-wise, uh, it's just the hierarchies that are very present. And so I don't know if this translates in this. Um, but what I was thinking about, um, what we were talking, was the way in which Hollywood represents us all, which is very odd. And I was thinking the, you know, the, the way I've gotten to know Indigenous Australia is through film, you know, and, and then that got me into reading books, you know, novels by Indigenous Australians. And so it's got me, you know, that way. And, and while I was reading the Anders text, you go like, oh, maybe I've, maybe I've got it wrong because I have, you know, he's right. I have a cinematic um, version of history. And maybe it's fake. And so you have to look into who made the film and why and what, are, you know, what are their, what, what, what's the ideology behind each film? 
are there any uh, natives of that culture in the production, you know, involved in the production of that film? So those were the questions that I was thinking, because, of course, um, when you represent Spanish culture, it's so fake in Hollywood. It's so it's there's so many problems. Um, it's very simplified. Um, but of course, then when you see films made by Spanish-speaking people for Spanish-speaking people, you get a whole different experience of cinema, a very um, realistic, although always simplified because you're limited by time and, and, and um, the, the, the visuals, but you get a very different experience. And so I was, I was thinking of that, you know, of like, it's the same when we go to uni and realize there have been massacres uh, of, of indigenous Australians that we didn't know about. Because the version of history we've gotten is through TV and film, and it's very simple. So we have to get a different source um, to find out the truth. No, so I, so I feel like well, cinema contributes to giving you a bit of the truth, but then you have to continue the search. No, absolutely, and I, I think that that's I think that's one of the things that Anders does so powerfully in the diary is he kind of throws these questions back to us to unpack in and and to unpack in our own contexts right which is why it's so fun to be able to talk to you Consuelo and you Tracy who who come from different places but the but we can find these synergies and uh, shared understandings that we can draw out from the experience based on the text um one of the the other issues that I think um the diary raises is around questions of accuracy versus questions of authenticity and if you're recreating something and it's it's super accurate does that then make it authentic you know how do we kind of you know just think those two terms um, accuracy and authenticity and this kind of you know this Hollywood obsession with these you know no there's no pleat too many you know these they're meticulously accurate so many of these recreations the actors who will be cast in the historical movies that will be made by Hollywood can rest easy. They know that no button was sewn into their costumes incorrectly and that none of the ruffs adorning their neck has even the smallest pleat too many. And yet in some ways that only enhances their inauthenticity, you know, in a sense, um... Tracy, how do you reconcile something like that? I, I mean, I think you're working with cassette tape to, to try and restore or, or recapture some of the language that gets lost. Are these things that you wrestle with sometimes? Um, well, yes. I mean, listening to um, those old guys who are speaking, we've only got a few of them, but, um, yes, they speak awfully fast and it's uh, like, oh, my gosh what were they saying there and you know they speak in I suppose the more research you do on it you they realize that they're speaking not in formal you know um ways but they're speaking in kind of colloquial shorthand ways of course as we all do when we're speaking and so um that's kind of one thing to realize um I don't know accuracy and authenticity I mean it's um yeah I mean, uh, some of those people were second uh, language speakers themselves, and so although they were speaking the my language, they were um, speakers actually of the language next door or a little down the way. So that's another thing. But even still, they were um, 
English speakers during their lives as well and so that they came back to their language and had to kind of remember their language from when they were children. But they did learn um, often their language as a first language speaker from grandparents or whatever and spending time with them. But then when they went off into the world of work, they were English speakers and didn't really speak. And because of all the practices and policies which really were um, assimilation practices and policies which were um, to kind of encourage Aboriginal people to exist in the Western world, you know, in the European English language-speaking world of Australia, um, and to leave everything behind, including language, then, you know, that was something that impacted how people spoke later. Um, So, yeah, that's interesting. So accuracy, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. What's your relationship to your your own language, Tracy, as somebody who has learnt it as a second language, your own language as a second language? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, pretty important for me to be continuing on in the work um, to, to teach it and to learn it more and more myself. But does it feel like it belongs to you, having had to acquire it in that way? Yeah. Yes, I'm reclaiming it, that's for sure. It belongs to me. Um, you know, my great-great-grandmother was one of the people who started recording language um, that she knew. And um, I think it uh, was important to her that she realised that, you know, it needed to be written down and um, or at least recorded in some way. So she wrote down, so there wasn't recording at that time. But I think um, I think we really want that language back and it is an important part of us and language is an important part of everyone. And uh, so, you know, to get that back is a really important thing and then to have it continue on and to have it available for our children and people in the future to be able to learn it I think is important because it has a lot of, um, you know, information in the language, you know, about country. You know, there's that... that um, relationship between language and country that's so important and that, you know, really informs my uh, way of looking at country as well. So it's kind of helping me to reconnect and to connect with other people and, um, you know, reconnecting with that language is an important part of it. How do you reconcile it emotionally? Does it make you angry? Yes. Yes, I'm extremely annoyed that it was, uh, you know, denied me and my parents and grandparents and you know it's a a wound I suppose and uh, you know hopefully by doing more in it and learning it more and more I'm repairing that but it is definitely something that's you know been denied us and uh, it's uh, you know thank goodness that um, we're reclaiming it now and there, there is some we're lucky enough to have some of those archival records and people on tape to be able to build it back up again. I was just um, thinking of so many things uh, when Tracy and you were talking because this question really resonates with me in in so many ways. I don't know where to begin. So um, I think in the classroom, for example, this this is one of the things that I have to drill into my students' heads so many times that just because accuracy, right, they think of language accuracy, the language that I'm teaching them, that's the right way of saying it. But then I have to say, um, but look, that's not the authentic way necessarily. You're going to go out there 
and when you you have your study abroad experience, you're going to hear things that you're going to say, that's grammatically incorrect. And that's not how you say it. But that's how we speak it. And it's going to happen. And, and it's very difficult for me to try to expose them to that, but ask them to keep to the rules when they have a test. I feel it's very, it borders on a hypocritical because I want them to learn the rules. And then I go, you know, learn them. And then you go and break them. But you need to know the rules before you break them. And, and if you have a strong base, then when you hear that whatever it is we do with language, you'll still get it and you get language play and you'll get jokes and you get all of that because you have that basis. But it, it makes you feel almost hypocritical, right? And saying, no, no, this is accurate, but not necessarily authentic. Uh, and I, I think it's the same um, stuff that you're getting from the Anders um, text. I also thought of, the, especially when Tracy was talking about the, the emotional aspect of language, um, I thought of Puerto Rico as a colony of the U.S. This is a very tense topic because we're taught English. So Puerto Rico, we function in Spanish and we have two official languages, Spanish and English. Um, but we've, we're taught English from kindy until uni. You have to do English all your life. And so this is like any other subject. You know, like some people love maths and they would do maths forever. Uh, and some people love English. And some people think English sucks and they their English is very basic and they, they don't care. They don't care about it because it's another subject. And as a language person myself, of course, I always loved English and I wanted to get my English to improve and I wanted to get the subtleties. And I, and I think that came with so many problems because why would you love your colonizer's language? And that, oh, that's just an emotional conflict that it's very hard to grapple with and to, to handle on an everyday basis and have to say to someone, I have no problems with English. I love it. I think it's a it's a playful area for me. Um, <laughs> but it's so charged because it's a colonial environment, it's a colonial context. So I was thinking about, about that more than anything. Um, that's fascinating, Consuelo. Yeah. I think that's so that's so interesting that, you know, that the sort of the the parallel there um I think is really powerful. Yeah, yeah. No, because I was thinking of, you know, Tracy has a very different experience, but at the same time, it's very similar. It's like, it's, yeah. But yeah, but anyway, and, and I guess as a translator, of course, you you, you think of um, accuracy and authenticity in very different ways. Know that um, uh, sometimes you just throw accuracy out the window and you go like, yeah, that's what he's saying, but that's not authentically what he means. Um, you go with authenticity and rules don't matter anymore. Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the language revitalization context. It's, um, yes. Right, right, because you were saying, right? Yeah. We have so many gaps and we're trying to, you know, build them up again. But, yeah, many people, um, you know, have different ways of saying it or different pronunciation or use different phrases. And, uh, you know, you could say, oh, yes, that's wrong. But, you know, in this in this environment, we are all trying to build it up and, you know, we're trying to um, reclaim parts of it. So, you know, it may well have been okay to say it that way. So, yeah, that's, that's a good question, good comment. Anders is very critical of Hollywood for, for reinventing the past. Um, 
But I, I wonder, is that what we all do? Is that just the nature of being in the present? I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I quite agreed with him. And that's, that is what we do. Even when you try to do um, autofiction, uh, biography, autobiography, um, you have your version of how you felt the situation was going. And, you know, like this is why when a, an author publishes an autobiography, the family goes wild <laughs> and going, no, that's not how things happen. Um, well, that's how things happen to me. Uh, and I think history, you know, trying to put down history is, has the same complication of like who's who's telling the version that we're hearing and what was each person feeling and can you really include all of the versions possible in there and can we deal with it with our small brains i mean exactly what you say consuelo right all you have to do is sit at a christmas dinner and and you experience the fact that people who've lived through the same thing have very different kind of experiences of it um tracy that must be something that you see as well well yes i guess different interpretations of as you say the same thing and and representation you know the way people represent other people and you know that's an important thing so i think to um to try and represent someone who's not from your culture or uh, background or whatever, um, you know, you need to know a lot about it. You need to probably involve people from that area in trying to build that representation accurately. Otherwise, you kind of resort to stereotypes and, you know, it's not an accurate representation of people. So in films especially, uh, you know, that happens, doesn't it? So I think the involvement of the people who are being represented is so important in that in that thing. I was going to ask about that, Tracy, because we have so many, you know, non-Indigenous scholars and um, people who are in the space of wanting to support people, uh, Indigenous people, to kind of recapture some of this. And and the amount of work that needs to go in means that we need more people to do that. But how do you navigate that, I guess, working with non-Indigenous people who want to support the effort but don't necessarily have the same rights to make claims? Um. Yes, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think you're right. I think more and more people are wanting to uh, to support Aboriginal people and you know right wrongs kind of thing. Um, and I think there is a big um, push to that. And I think the more people know, the more they're able to be involved in that area. But I think also the more people are able to um, you know work with people from that area, you know, look to community-led projects, you know, to be supporting those projects instead of coming along with an idea and going, I know how to fix this, you know, this here, we'll do this. I mean, you know, that's not the way. So I think with with any Indigenous group or any group that, you know, is being supported, you can't just kind of come in and go, here, this is what we'll do. I've got, I've got a good heart. I know what I'm doing. I'm trying hard to do the right thing. But it still won't work. Um, it won't be authentic or it won't be, you know, worthwhile work if you don't have the involvement of of the people that you're helping in the project. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, I'm thinking about the work of people like Rolf Tahir, um, you know, and the, the time that he spent in uh, the Northern Territory when he was making a film like Ten Canoes, for example, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and you see how much um, collaboration there is in those kind of projects. So you can see that it's not just one person doing something. He's doing that with, you know, 
a whole group of people who are helping him in every aspect of the work. Yeah, and I think in films, you know, we need people to be um, involved in, you know, being in front of the camera, being behind the camera, being the writers, you know. People need to be involved in all areas. Consuelo, are there things that you can take away from this that are, you know, that are useful, that kind of give you some some other ways to think about the questions that you grapple with in your work? Yeah, I think there, there's a lot. There's a lot that I could take away from it. I don't, I don't know that I can choose. Um, yeah, I think I think that idea of um, presenting presenting something that is old and established in its own way as something brand new um, follows you everywhere when you're a foreigner because your culture is a given for you. Um, and yet you still have to present it as new to everybody else that you meet and provide all this information. And, and for them, it's like, ooh, that's cool or nice or interesting. But you're like, yeah, that's how it is. No, it's like very normal. And I think it, I felt very comfortable reading the text just because I was like, oh, somebody else thinks like me that this is like ridiculous. And there's some fun into, into seeing, seeing it. Yeah. That's so cool. Uh, that teaches me things, right? You use your, yeah. Um, Tracy, are there things that, you know, are useful for you that you can take away? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I agree with Consuelo there. Yes, it's um, uh, things to take away. I mean, you know, looking at, um, well, I suppose that idea of um, representing things as new, representing things, you know, from your perspective rather than, looking at other people, knowing more about what you're talking about before you start talking, you know, before you make a movie or, you know, you need to do a lot more background uh, research. And we should all know more about other people, I think. So our education system, I think, hopefully is improving in that way. But, you know, instead of focusing on the importance of Western civilization and how we have to have, you know, the study of the what happened from 1788 on in Australia, from the European perspective, we need to have all of those perspectives represented. We need to have a shared history. There have been so many people who've come to Australia over that seven, from that 1788 time period as well, people from different cultures. And so in Australia, I think that, you know, we need to be more knowledgeable about each other and more knowledgeable about Indigenous people and more knowledgeable about, you know, ways to work with each other and that kind of thing. So instead of kind of, you know, staying in your little box and going, I know what I'm doing here, it needs to be more open and and more understanding of each other, I think. And I think he was kind of saying that, you know, pointing out that Hollywood's making this interpretation and representation from kind of nowhere, (laughs) without people like him being involved, he's going, you know, what are they doing kind of thing. This is, you know. Well, they're there, aren't they? These amazing kind of people with all this historical knowledge, but they're relegated to cleaners and uh, they're never part of the the conversation about how the story gets told. Which is very similar to here in Australia, the same kind of situation and in other colonial countries as well, I think, you know. So, yeah, exactly right. Who's going to bring their boots you know, from underneath the rubble, the real boots, right? 
<laughs> Who's going to do that in Australia? <laughs> Um, that was so such a, a great conversation. I'm so grateful to you both for your time and your insights. I think there's all this richness that you bring to the text and and to the messages that it it has and how it can travel through our own experiences. So I'm super super grateful to you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. You have been listening to Unpacking the Real, season two of Real is Not Real Enough. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Unpacking the Real is a collaborative research project created by Chris Muller and Helen Wolfenden from Macquarie University and Ben Nickel from the University of Sydney. We're grateful for the support of the many organisations who've got behind this project. You can find out more at the Goethe website for Real is Not Real Enough. Find the link in the show notes.